Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna continue on with our um, our major cations here, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna look at potassium now. If you look up there, you'll see that potassium is a. Uh, can you hear? You guys hear me? Okay, if I'm standing to the side of it like this, you know, okay. Um, is a single plus charge. Calcium and magnesium will always push magne uh, potassium out of the way. It'll outmuscle it. It's twice as strong, and it will. Uh, it will. The only way that potassium can push the others is if you just pile it on in massive amounts, where you get a mass flow that can dis displace the other two. But if you were to do that, you would probably do more damage than it was worth, and it would probably cost you quite a bit to do that. Uh, potassium process it processes that produce stock strength. Potassium is the first key to stock strength. If you've got stuff falling over, you need to see if you've got adequate potassium. The other two are manganese and copper. Um, copper, remember I said, was involved in collagen formation. It actually gives, it allows, if you have tree branches breaking off and stuff like that, rather than flexing, you probably don't have enough copper in, in the tree. It could be manganese or potassium too. Potassium is the first factor, and you have to have that one and then a manganese and copper are the, are the next two. But copper gives you the flexibility, just like in collagen, it gives you the flexibility of the bone um, from the collagen formation there with the silica. That's why people's bones break, by the way, is because they don't have any give to it, they don't have any flex to them. They're, they're, they're rigid and they're not supposed to be. Um, and that's why people have aneurysms, things like that, they don't have adequate collagen formation in their, their vessels. Premature wrinkling skin. If you prematurely wrinkle, redheads, redheads are really um, susceptible to copper deficiencies and that's why they have red hair. And, um, but premature wrinkling, premature graying of your hair are a couple of indications that uh, you don't have enough copper or something's interfering with the metabolism of copper in your system. But we're not to copper yet. Let's finish with <laughs> potassium. Uh, it it's a regulation of leaf transpiration and gas exchange. This is really important. If, that, if that's what's called the stomata, the little openings on the, on the leaf that allow air exchange and, and transpiration to take place, if those, are not, if those are not managed adequately by sufficient supplies of potassium, you won't get the, the type of transpiration you need and you won't get optimum growth off of the plant. It's uh, involved in water use efficiency, related to the previous one, winter hardiness, and it is mobile. So the, the deficiency symptoms will show up in the older part of the plant first. The deficiency symptoms on potassium are scorched yellow leaf margins, and that would be on the lower leaves. And it's usually on the outer edges, it starts on the outer edges of the leaf. You'll see that that's different than now, nitrogen deficiency when we get to it, because it starts on those leaves too, but it starts from the middle and goes in. Uh, but scorched yellow leaf margins, usually on the older leaves, unless it's a really bad deficiency. And uh, the excess, the symptoms of excess on that is luxury consumption. The high potassium levels in the soil will be luxury consumed by plants, and it can lead to other cation deficiencies. Basically, what happens is the luxury consumption of potassium blocks out the excess to the other cations, like calcium and magnesium. These are the sources for potassium. All of the sources I'm giving you, I'm, I'm putting up top, the, or I'm trying to I'll only give you the, the best sources here. There may be some other sources available, but uh, I'm not particularly listing them here because they would be kind of last resort sources. <coughs> potassium sulfate, or sulfate of potash, or you'll hear it, you'll see it called, uh, um, SOP, SOP, sulfate of potash, they'll abbreviate it SOP as opposed to MOP, which is muriate of potash. You'll see I don't have muriate of potash on there, which is, this is, uh, sulfate of potash is 50 to 52% K2O, you'd have to multiply that times 0.83 to get the actual uh, content, I think it's 0.4, it's 41.5% is actual potassium on that one. It's usually 17 to 18% sulfur that comes with it. The source I just mentioned, muriate of potash, MOP, they call it a lot of the time, uh, is 0060. You'll see this 
uh, listed as 0050 or 0052, because the third number on those, the fertilizer bags is representative of the potassium. If you see 0060, I had a, a grower from Western Colorado call me and he said, um, I'd recommended potassium sulfate. And he said, well, the dealer said that he has 0060, works just as well. And this is a new grower. He's not really familiar with that stuff. I, he said, so do I just do 50 divided by 60 to figure out how much I need since it's a higher concentration? I said, no, you don't do anything at all with that. That's muriate of potash. It's potassium chloride. It's the cheapest source. It's the most commonly used source, but it's, it's heavily damaging to the biology in the soil because of the amount of chlorides in it. Now, having said that, God leads us from where we are and when I work with people, some people say, uh, I can't afford anything else, this is what I'm gonna use. And I make a recommendation for them. Because what happens is, they're gonna get further down the road the right way. They're gonna do some damage using that material. Sometimes people will use anhydrous ammonia and they say, well that's the cheapest source and that's all I can afford and that's what I'm gonna put on and I recommend anhydrous ammonia. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't use it myself. And I recommend to them other choices but if they're going to do it anyway, then they need to intelligently. And I usually try to, you know, get them to use an aqua ammonia or, or inject water with it when they're doing it. Because what happens when anhydrous ammonia hits the soil is it, it, it's a pH of 11, I think. It, and it's, not, it's out of balance. That's what most of the bad chemistry is. It's just way out of balance. So it's got a pH of 11. And as soon as it hits the soil, the, the, the natural system is going to want to stabilize that and it starts pulling water from denature and everything in sight, pulling the water out of it, and, and uh, to, in order to try to stabilize that, that high pH. Um, the other bit, which we, I didn't, we didn't get to uh, phosphorus yet, so, but the other one there is triple superphosphate. It's on the other end of the spectrum at a pH of three. And the same thing happens there. It just, it, it, it just nature is gonna tie it up to stabilize it. And then within a short period of time, you're right back to rock phosphate again. The original material they used, they reacted it with uh, uh, gypsum or um, sulfuric acid, and they get they get a concentration of, of phosphate, uh, what was called O20O. I'll tell the rest of the story with sulfur. Uh, but then now they concentrate, they hit it with phosphoric acid because when they hit it with the sulfuric acid, because remember, rock phosphate has calcium in it. So what you wind up getting is gypsum, calcium sulfate, and the more concentrated uh, phosphate. Um, then they hit it again with phosphoric rock now, and they get a more concentrated. They get gets rid of the gypsum, the calcium sulfate out of it, and you get a more concentrated phosphate fertilizer. Um, but it has a pH of three, and it's and it's uh, it's going to get tied up rapidly because it's it's way out of balance, and nature's abhors imbalance, and so just like it does a vacuum, and it's going to try to stabilize it and. And uh, you'll build up a, a reserve of phosphate in your soil. I've got guys that, I know guys that switched over from using those materials, and they went into a more balanced situation, you know, better, using better materials, balanced their, their mineralization out, biology started working. They haven't had to put phosphate on for 10 years because they built so much of that triple superphosphate that got locked up in their soil. They built so much of it up, and now the biology's working, it's just breaking it back down and releasing it, and so they don't have to put anything on. It's coming back out, but not usually because it generally just breaks it out as it's needed, more so in that type of situation. Okay, then we're back to uh, sulpomag again and Kmag. Remember, it had 22% K2O, or it's like 18.3% K on that, just straight potassium, uh, and the magnesium and sulfur. The materials you choose to use are going to be determined by what you actually need. If you need potassium, magnesium, and sulfur, that would be a more economical source to use than a potassium sulfate and a magnesium sulfate or something else to try to get the combination out of it. A lot of growers, but I want to back up the potassium sulfate, a lot of growers would say, because it costs more money than the, than the potassium chloride or the muriate of potash, but they don't factor in the sulfur. In almost all soils, and we'll talk about it when we get there, almost all soils are deficient in sulfur. It leaches easy out of the soil, and its original, you know, its historical sources are pretty much dried up, and most growers are in the past still. 
and don't, they're not taken into consideration. Okay, the next, the next thing on here is green sand, which is more or less 6 to 9% potassium, or K2O. Um, and this is a good source because of, of its exchange capacity. It has a high exchange capacity to it, so you can add that as a, as a good source of increasing some cation exchange capacity in your soil. The problem with this one now here is I understand that, that all of this mining is being shut down for environmental reasons. Uh, I don't know what the environmental problem would be, but they're, they're talking about shutting it down. I understand that they may be shutting it down there too. So I, I, it's all in flux right now, I don't know. It's a good long-term source of potassium to build reserves. It's not a rapidly breaking down source, so if you need, if you need potassium now, or fairly quickly, it's not a good source, but it is a good source for um, building, building long-term reserves in the soil availability. Another one is granite dust, which is more or less 4 to 6 percent K2O. Um, good source has got a mix of, of minerals in it. The problem is the cost of shipping it. it it's pretty heavy. I've never heard that there's a problem. Dust from granite sawings. It's pure. Doesn't have all the other stuff in it. Crazy. You get closer to the 84 complete minerals with it. Is that true? I don't know. I haven't heard that before. I'll have to. I'll have to check on that. On boron. I just understood that you can get too much boron very easily with that. Is that am I, did I get that from you, or where did I get that? I don't. I don't think so. Yeah, I, I don't know. If, if, that's a, if it's an issue, it would definitely have to be evaluated. But I, I don't think it, I don't, if I recall the, you know, the content in, in granite, I don't think it would be a problem. Unless it's such, if it's really fine from, from sawing and stuff like that, if it's really fine from that, where you have re, ready release. I, I don't know what the, boring, the actual boron content is in granite, so I, I don't know. I'd have to. Okay, animal manures which range from uh, half a percent up to 3% K2O. Um, this can, uh, one of the things about potassium, which I'll say since we're on that one, if your pH is above six and a half and you're low in potassium, you're not gonna be able to build potassium from commercial sources. There's nowhere for it to go. The exchange sites are all filled uh, and most likely they're filled with, with double plus calcium and, magne and magnesium, and there's nowhere for it to go. And so if you're in that situation, you need to uh, put on smaller quantities more often or inject it in order to maximize the use of the material. Otherwise, you wind up leaching a lot of it and just losing it. So in a situation where you were really low in potassium and you had a pH of 6.5 or higher, I would usually recommend splitting the applications in order to maximize and keep something growing there. Don't put it on if nothing's growing there. Because when it breaks down and it starts raining, it'll just leach it out. Not the case with, with uh, organic sources. You can build potassium levels even with a, higher, with a pH of 6.5 or higher if you're applying organic sources like compost, castings, manures. You can actually build uh, potassium levels. You can actually even apply some commercial, commercial sources with the organic sources and, and get a lot of that to stick when it otherwise it wouldn't. Or more alkaline. Six, six, five or higher, so up going up towards neutral and, and alkaline. And it simply comes down to there's nowhere for it to go. There's nowhere for it to attach to and it's in, in a potassium sulfate form, it's in a soluble form. And if water moves through that soil and there's nothing to take it up, the microbes or the plant roots or something is not taking it up, and water moves through that soil, it'll leach it out. And you'll, you'll potassium sulfate has gotten fairly expensive, and so it's not one of those things you want to just put on and, and have it wash through the soil and not. Um, this is another factor that's not, you'll be told a lot of times, oh, potassium doesn't leach like that. And growers put potassium on and it disappears. And it, Test comes back the next year and it's hardly changed. Uh, it does it does leach out. You do lose it. What about foliar applications? You haven't mentioned that a whole lot. Is it 
you can use foliar applications. You probably can't apply enough. If you've got a high demand potassium, a high potassium demand crop, you probably can't put enough on foliar. You could put it through like drip irrigation or something like that. You could fertigate it in and just put it in small quantities over a longer period of time to try to match the, the crop demand over time rather than putting extra on there and, and trying to get it to stay there. Now, Right, yeah, they're, they're both, the 52% material is a finer, is, is the fines, it's just smaller pieces, so they're more soluble just because they're smaller, both of them are soluble. Uh, so if you were going to use it as in drip irrigation or something, you probably, you can use either one, but the 52% the, the would go into solution faster for you. They're both, there's a manufactured source and there's a mine source. A lot of what's on the market is, is pretty much mine, but there are some manufacturer sources. Um, the plant doesn't know the difference between the two of them, whether it's manufactured or it's mine. It's, there's not a lot of contam there's not a lot of contam contaminants in the reaction in the manufacturing process. It's pretty much straight potassium sulfate. You can add the percentages up and see if it adds up to 100% in the bag. One of the things they love to do is add contaminants into mixed fertilizers. So when you go into the store and you buy a 10-10-10 or a 18-something-something you know, something or whatever it is, I would suggest that you, most people don't know how to do this, but you have to take the atomic weights and you, you add them all up and see if it adds up to 100%. If it doesn't add up to 100%, put something else in that bag. And you might want to know what it is because it's a convenient way of getting rid of toxic waste. They figure, they, now listen, they figure, oh, we're just spreading little bits out all over a wide area. I, I figure out what it said on my bag. I bought some stuff at Lowe's and what it said on the bag, and my wife did a little research. And it would raise up the levels in our garden to be toxic waste ground, like contaminated soil. Yeah. I, I, avoid, I avoid blends, fertilizer blends, at all costs, unless I can evaluate that blend and, and see or not. Okay, if I don't come up to 100%, then I'm asking what else, you, what else is in that bag? Because they don't, they don't have to put it on the label, and uh, they don't, and they feel it's okay because they're spreading little bits out over. They never take into consideration somebody might be using it on a small garden area every single year, and it's accumulating. Okay, another source is kelp or seaweed. It's uh, anywhere from 5 to 16% K2O. It's a good source because it's got a lot of trace elements with it. It's an expensive source uh, for any kind of quantity. And um, it's got a, got a lot of growth stimulants in it. And so too high amounts of the kelp meal might not be the greatest thing all, you know, at one time. So it's not really a great source for putting... You know, if you need 200 pounds of, of potassium, well, kelp, kelp is not going to be the, the thing you're going to want to use. Besides the fact that it probably costs you five or $6,000 to, to get that much potassium, you're just going to get way overloaded with, with growth stimulants and, and everything else, growth hormones and stuff that are in it. That, yeah, green sand, that's the other thing. Is it? I mean, green sand is, for the price that you're paying for it, um, you're, you're going to spend a lot of money to get the amount of potassium you would need. So. I don't know that there's any negative effects out of green sand. It doesn't, it's not a, it's not a plant-based, it's a mineral-based material, and so it doesn't have the growth hormones and stuff in it that came from the, from the kelp. Was it soluble would be the granite kelp? Insoluble? Right. Yeah, the, either the green sand or the granite dust, they'll slow, they're a slow breakdown. And it depends on how finely they're ground. You know, the more surface area, the faster it can be broken down. The, the, less, the bigger the particles, the less surface area. The smaller the particles, the, the larger the surface area. Yeah, the top two, the top two sources are really the best, most economical sources. Um, wood ashes uh, are 7 to 9% potassium. My father-in-law burns, remember I had the soil test up there of his, and I was telling you that the, the uh, we did tests on either side. Well, it turned out that the orchard was severely deficient in calcium, uh, even though the other part looked great. The, the orchard side, which is on the slope, was severely deficient in calcium and deficient in potassium. 
Well, he had a big pile of wood ashes from burning wood, and uh, I just, we just calculated out what the, what the average of what it would probably be, and he was able to put the wood ashes on, and there's, calcium is pretty high in wood ashes, too. Most people put it on for potassium, but the calcium is actually higher than the potassium in wood ashes. In most cases, if it's a, if it's a conifer, a pine, something like that, it's not as high as the deciduous would be. But. I don't think you would mind, for the amount you were putting on, I don't think you, because a lot of the, the uh, residues would be burnt up in the, in the burning of the wood. I don't think you would, you would I, I don't know, I mean, the amount of stuff people spray anymore, you never know. <laughs> but I, would, I wouldn't think it would be a problem. But that's a good source if you burn wood, and you, and you, need, you know you need the calcium and the potassium, not just the, cal the potassium. Hardwoods are usually higher in calcium. Potassium will more or less be the same. So what do you want then, pine or something? Well, pine would be lower in calcium, but you would still get calcium with it. So if you were in a situation where you had more than enough calcium or high calcium, then you might not use wood ashes. Or if you're going to put enough on, it's not going to, it's not going to be enough extra calcium. Remember I said that calcium can be a little bit higher than what... Yes. Uh, Ideal would be as long as everything else is good. So, so if you run it, if you push it up a couple points higher because you put the wood ashes on, you know, I, depending on everything else, how everything else looked, wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, it'll affect the pH because of the alkaline cations in it. The potassium and calcium are both alkaline forming cations, and so they're going to neutralize acidity. So yeah, the pH will go up. Okay. Sodium. Now most people think what. What's sodium here for? Believe it or not, there are places you need to put sodium on. Somebody was asking me about, who was it was asking me about their soil test where they recommended chili and nitrate need sodium? I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, sodium's role is required for proper growth of barley and crops in the goosefoot family, beets, spinach, Swiss chard. If you don't have adequate sodium in the soil, you're not gonna grow good beets, spinach, or Swiss chard. They have to have at least 1% at least of, of sodium in order for that to, for them to grow well. They actually use it in hydroponic growing of tomatoes and, and even watermelons because it'll, the, the saltiness of the sodium will improve the flavor, but it'll also help it pull up, it'll cause it to pull up more water. So it, it, it makes it bigger. Um, deficiency symptoms of sodium is poor growth and yield of sodium requiring crops. Excesses are usually the problem with sodium. Excesses are, it'll substitute for, K, for potassium, potentially resulting in tissue rupture and damage. What happens is uh, the plant will substitute sodium. If sodium is higher percentage-wise than potassium, which it never should be, um, the plant will substitute sodium for potassium. And where it becomes a big problem is in those stomata, those openings in the leaves, um, It'll cause, if it gets too hot, the leaf, the stomata won't open like it's supposed to. But if it also gets too hot and humid, the sodium expands, pulls in water, and it, and it bursts the cells and kills the cells if sodium is substituted for potassium. So you never want sodium higher than potassium where it'll get, you'll have a situation where it's substituted for the potassium on that. And there's a lot of situations like that. If you're in a low humidity area where you don't get a lot of humidity and everything like that, you may never see it. You may have that problem, but you might not see it manifested because the, the temperature doesn't get high enough to cause the cell, wall, cell to expand enough and burst by pulling water in. Okay, sources of sodium. Typically, the, the, if you need sodium, it'll typically be recommended you put sodium nitrate or chilium nitrate on. 16% nitrogen, 26% sodium. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. If you need sodium and you need nitrogen, it's highly, highly soluble. So you better be sure that it's going to get utilized because it's, it is highly soluble source. My preferable source, I just put it on top because that's typically what's recommended.
Um, he was asking the question, since it's so highly soluble, would it be better to apply it before you sow your crop or after? It would probably be better to apply it beforehand unless you can, you can get it on and it doesn't stay on the, on the plants. I mean, if you plant it and the plants are still small and you, you apply it, that might be okay, but I would, it would probably be best to get it in the ground beforehand. You just don't want to put it in you know, a long time before, maybe a week before, a few days before you're going to plant incorporate it. Mm. Hmm. Well, yeah, you could, you could incorporate it right before planting. Sometimes they'll use this and they'll band it too, people who band stuff. I don't, everything I recommend is broadcast over the whole acre. You want the whole area to be healthy. Um, I've got like fruit growers, tree, fruit tree growers, they want to just, they want to just fertilize the, the tree row, what they call a drip line because they were told that the roots don't go past the drip line anyway. Well, the truth is that the roots will go as far past the drip line as they have access to fertility. And in addition to that, the trees actually establish a mycorrhizal relationship with the, with the fungi, and that fungi covers the entire area, going after nutrients for the tree. So you want that balanced fertility everywhere. A lot of times they don't want to do it because of the cost, and sometimes they don't want to do it because uh, then the, the grass in, the, in between the trees grows faster or better and they got to go in and mow it more often. I said, well, that just produces more organic matter and more microbes and everything just gets, gets better for you. But some people don't want the hassle, so they, uh, they don't do it. But you want the, whole, the entire area. I, you know, I, I discourage banding and, and uh, those type of things. I understand why people do it because of the economics and trying to focus and target your fertility to, to getting a crop. Remember, we're, we're feeding the soil here, and, we're, and the soil's gonna feed the crop. We're not feeding the crop. So broadcasting it across, uh, uh, over the entire. If you're putting chili and nitrate on? Yeah. Well, you're really, and now, you wouldn't, you wouldn't wanna use chili and nitrate to supply all your nitrogen. You just wanna put enough on to get your sodium up to the percentage you needed. So, you know, if you needed, let's say if you needed 25 pounds of sodium, then you'd put 100 pounds of sodium nitrate on. Well, if you need it, if it's short, and again, it's one of those situations where if you're above 6.5, sodium can get on the colloidal site, I believe it or not, better than potassium can. So it's not as, it's not as big an issue, but uh, you if you have a, a pH above six and a half, you're not gonna get as much of it there because it is highly soluble, it's highly leachable. So you want it for somewhere, somewhere for it to go. Uh, otherwise you will wind up, especially attached to nitrogen, it, it can leave the soil in a hurry. But when I say that, I mean, relatively speaking, it may take a month for it to leave. If you get 10 inches of rain, it might take it a week to leave. A lot of growers put nitrogen on, they get this massive, these torrential rains, and it washes out all their, their nitrogen when they put the highly soluble nitrogens on, and, and it washes it all out, and they've got to go back and put it on again. So. And then kelp uh, has sodium in it as well, it's variable. Oh, I didn't do the sea minerals yet. Well, the kelp is variable. Again, um, it would take a, a significant quantity of kelp, usually for the, the need that you have. Uh, what I usually use is sea minerals. And they come in a, a, several different sources for them. Uh, the, the best source is actually sea crop out of Washington from Ambrosia Technologies. It's expensive though. But it, sea crop? I'm sorry? Ambrosia Technologies. But if you just look up sea crop, you'll get, you'll get their website. Um, it's a liquid. The way they process it, the, the biology in the water stays alive. It's highly effective material, but it's expensive. A more economical source would be something like C90, C minerals, um, which is a, a more economical source. The other one, I think, is superior to it, but if you need the sodium, that's, that's a good source. You're getting trace and rare earth elements with it when you put the C minerals on and not just, a, just the, um, the sodium. And uh, believe it or not, some of those trace and rare earths in the lab have doubled and tripled lifespans at parts per billion. We, we don't know everything. 
when, when I'm sharing with you here, there's a lot of this with these tracing rare earth elements. They, did, they have done research on some of this, and like I said, some of these rare earth elements in parts per billion will double and triple lifespan of, of laboratory animals. There are others in parts per billion that will lower energy consumption dramatically, making energy consumption more efficient. It's just making it more efficient. In parts per billion, um, there was, there's a, a place we go to up at Pigeon Forge there, and they have a, a wheel there with a, with a billion pe uh, beads in it. With one, they're all, they have, I don't mean, know, it's a billion, but then they have some different colors in there that represent 100,000 and different like that. But then they have one purple bead in a billion beads in that thing, and you're supposed to sit there and try to find it. <laughs> I haven't found it yet. Um, but yeah, C90. There's some others. It's about how they, they harvest the seawater, sea how they dry it. And some of them, they, they, they scrape off some of the sodium, because sodium will crust on the top first, and so they'll take the so sodium off and reduce the sodium content in the water. And that's probably a preferable thing, unless you need a, a lot of sodium. Uh, ambrosia doesn't, they have a way of reducing the sodium, but it doesn't, when they solar dry it, 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 it has some impact on it. it the, the sea crop? Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. So I understand they use some, some crab shell in there with it. Um, which crab shell, by the way, is, uh, this would be the same as bone meal or fish bone meal. You're going to get the phosphate and you're going to get the calcium. Soil structure. I didn't do the drawings on this one. Um, the explanation is sufficient. But potassium, potassium size tends to allow it to seal off the edges. It plugs up the edges of the plates, the clay plates. And when it does that, it lowers the CEC and it plugs up the pore space. Potassium and sodium don't do anything real good for, for soil structure. And uh, sodium disperses clay plates. In other words, they just fall apart. Sodium causes them to fall apart and it just plugs up, it plugs up all the pores that's why high sodium soils are so poorly drained. That's a, it just turns into soup. If you've ever seen a high sodium soil when it gets wet, it just kind of turns to soup and it's just everything just gets plugged up. So in essence, both of these two doing two different ways. One seals off the edges of the clay plates and uh, plugs up pore space that way and the other one disperses the clay plates where they totally fall apart and there's no structure to them at all. And they just plug everything up. Okay, do you know what time, what time did we start? I don't remember, at three, so we got quite a ways, quite a ways to go on this. Um, we're all done with that. I'm, I'm trying to think there was something else I was gonna tell you about on this. Oh, let me, one of the things with potassium, potassium can tie up boron. If you give above, if you get above seven and a half percent saturation of potassium, it will it will tie up boron. Out of Dean Valley, we had 13 percent potassium. The other thing it'll do at that level is you will have seed germination coming out your ears, and you'll go out and you'll cultivate, and you'll go out the next morning and it'll look like you didn't do anything. They just rooted back in like they were just laughing at you. They just rooted back in and and. Uh, started growing again. So this is how you eliminate some of the problems you have. If you get potassium in balance with the other cations and the soil is properly structured, you're not stimulating all that seed germination. Um, you get adequate stimulation of the seed germination, but you're not stimulating just perpetually. Just what, what happens is the plant, usually plants will put out suppressants. When they germinate, they'll start putting out exudates out the roots to suppress germination. They don't want competition, so they're suppressing anything else germinating around them. But if you have high potassium level like uh, high potassium levels like that, it just like totally neutralizes that that effect. Um, and so you you just get tremendous weed pressure. And there there's a, about a million weed seeds per square foot of soil, every square foot of soil, about a million. And that's not a battle you'll win. By changing the conditions in the soil, you'll change what's expressed there. Did I see a hand up over here? Oh, okay. It, it, um, anywhere from, well, the bare minimum is 
And that's kind of like the bare minimum. You really want to be anywhere from five to seven and a half percent. And remember I said anything over seven and a half percent, you start, you start tying up boron and causing a problem. If you, if you could, you're okay around the five percent if you're growing non-woody crops or non-vining crops, but if you're growing woody crops, any kind of bush, bushes, uh, like small fruits, uh, vining crops like tomatoes or cucumbers, fruit trees, anything that's woody, you really want to be up closer to seven, seven and a half percent. You're growing grapes, you want the best grapes, uh, seven, seven and a half percent. The saturation on that. But you really don't want to go over seven and a half. Yeah, no, you don't want to go over seven and a half. And I remembered the other thing I was going to tell you. You never want, you never want potassium and magnesium, or I'm, I'm sorry, potassium and sodium to equal more than 10% between them. So you've got to be sure that whatever level you bring potassium to, your sodium, if you've got a lot of sodium in the system, you want to make sure you keep them below 10% combined. If they go above 10%, they'll block out manganese. And so you'll stop getting the manganese you need. On that. Yeah, sodium, sodium disperses those clay plates. Remember that drawing I had that was showing the calcium and the potassium, or were you in? Yeah, what, what sodium does is just, they fall apart. They're, they're not attached at all. They, the, the, it causes the clay plates to disperse or just fall apart, separate from each other. And then those clay plates, now, my drawing shows this big looking plate here, but you're talking about microscopic size plates. And so if you get all those plates falling apart and dispersing in water, they just fill in all the pore spaces and plug them all up. And then the soil won't drain. What time do we start again? Three? Okay. When you keep changing these 15 minute things and just moving around, I keep forgetting what was what on that. Um, does anybody have any questions as, you know, as far as we've gone here so far? We're going to we're going to be wrapping up on that. I have to do a quick adjustment to my next presentation, but. Sorry, chillium, um, chillium nitrate? It's sodium nitrate. Yeah, I mean, it's sodium nitrate. They call it chillium nitrate because it's mined in Chile. The majority of it comes out of Chile, the country. So they call it chillium nitrate. Hmm? One more. We're going we're gonna to jump to the, and we're, we're going to have a challenge to get through it, but I need to make an adjustment to that before we can do it, so. Um. As you've been mentioning a lot of sulfur, uh, we did a bench, and we looked at a lot of things, and when I come, they had some sulfur form, not a form that was form. Form. Well, remember, sulfur is highly leachable. The question, the question was, uh, he was wanting me to, to elaborate a little bit more on if you get too much sulfur in the system, and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more when we do the anions, but... Um, well, that's okay, I don't mind, we've got time. <laughs> uh, sulfur is highly leachable, and it doesn't leave the soil by itself. It leaves with some other cation. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to take with it calcium, magnesium, potassium, or sodium, most likely. And it's going to go after the one that's in the most excess. Now, what, do you, what, what does it go after if you don't have any excesses? It goes after whatever it grabs. So whatever it can pull off the e easiest, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go after and, and take it out. So you don't, you don't want surplus sulfur in the system. Most people don't have anywhere near enough. Sulfur leaches out, and I take a so you'll take soil tests from year to year, unless you've got a compaction issue or high magnesium or something where it's not moving. Sulfur, you'll put, a, you'll put 100 pounds of sulfur on and you come back the next year and there's only 10 pounds there, 20 pounds again. It's been used up by the crop and it's been leached out. So, and it usually, took, it usually takes something with it. And, yeah, in some cases, the question is if you foliar fed the sulfur, in some form that had the sulfur on it. If you foliar applied it to the plant, would it go, stay on the, in the plant or would it go to the ground? 
some cases the plant will just dump it out the roots if it's surplus. In some cases it can't. Um, sulfur, sulfur is um, immobile, and so if you put it on foliar, most likely it's going to get stuck. It's going to get somewhere, and it may be it may be too much. So you have to be careful. Well, it's the same reason that copper sprays they use for copper for fungicides. It's the same reason it works. It's an actual, depending on the form, it, it, you know, like when they use copper, they're using a copper hydroxide, and it's, it's, a, it's a phytotoxic reaction. It kills the, but it's also the fact that the plant's deficient in copper. It's a, um, I had somebody ask, uh, a guy was doing a presentation, and, and he was talking about copper and how much, all the sprays they were having to do, and he just asked the question, well, is, how about, do you ever think to check the ground and see if there's any copper in the ground? That the plant can just get and take up as it, as it needs it and everything, but most people don't think about that. But you can get too much of anything, and you've got, um, I'm trying to remember a name, Uncle Matt's, Uncle Matt's Citrus. They're a certified organic citrus grower in Florida, and they have, we didn't get the copper yet, but you know, you generally don't want more than 10 parts per million of copper, and they have 40 to 50. And it's all as a result of copper fungicides that have been sprayed in the past on there. And their certifier, their certifier, they, they actually, you can actually get to where you have levels like that where they're, they become antagonistic, and so you actually have to spray copper to, um, to get sufficient, but their certifiers won't allow them to, to, um, to do it. And they actually wanted to decertify them because they're copper. But, all of the citrus down in Florida is that way, and a lot of a lot of fruit orchards where they use heavy copper fungicide applications and stuff, the, the copper levels are really high. Uh, you said on the on the sodium and potassium, um, the potassium shouldn't be more than the sodium. The potassium should always be more than sodium. Sodium should yeah, sh sodium should never be higher than potassium because then substitution can take place in the plant. It'll substitute it in the Sodium in the cell wall, they'll substitute sodium for potassium, and then you the plant will, yeah. If, the high, if there's a higher concentration of sodium than potassium, it'll just substitute it and it'll put that in there. And if you get hot, humid conditions, those cell walls are going to burst and the, and the plant will die. It'll happen one day, everything looks beautiful, and then you get hot, humid weather like that, and and it, it swells the swells the cell walls because of the sodium in there instead of the potassium, and it and it bursts the the cell walls. And the next thing, everything's dying. And then people confuse that for nematode problems and all kinds of things because they're not they're not paying attention to their their chemistry. And so things other things. Yeah. The best time to apply most materials is actually in the fall. Yeah, it depends on again. It depends on. Whether, if there's some place for it to go, it depends on all these factors of where the pH is and, and all of that. If you've got a pH above six and a half and you need potassium, I, I would, wouldn't put it on until you're ready to grow, pretty close to when you're ready to grow, just to get it starting to break down. Uh, if you put it on in the fall and you're not going to plant till the spring and you get a lot of rain in the fall and winter, you're probably going to, you're probably, if you went back and you took a soil test the, the following spring, most of it would probably be gone. And so that would just be a waste of money. So it depends on the, the different variables, you know, what your pH is. And, but in general, if you're putting trace elements on or, or any of the cations, you want to put them in, on in the fall so that they have time to start breaking down and integrating into the system. The assumption is that there's a place for them to go. As long as there's a place for them to go, then they're going to start integrating onto those colloidal sites and, and become available for the crop. And, and you'll have a, a much better condition. It's just giving them time by putting it on in the fall. On the charge sites, on those colloidal exchange sites, you know, if your bucket is not all the way full, then you need to apply something. Well, there's space, there's places for it to go and to attach. If your bucket's full at six and a half, your bucket is full enough that the potassium is not going to find. There's there's so few exchange sites that they could kick hydrogen off, uh, which it could do, but there's so few exchange sites that it's not likely to find enough of them and, and a lot of it will, if it's not taken up by the, by the crop, by the plant roots, or sometimes the microbes will take some of it. Um, whatever doesn't get taken up and, and with enough water moving through that soil, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go with it as it solubilizes.
So if you need it and you're getting ready to plant, it's best to just put it on, not to wait and wait till the next fall. If you need, if you need the material, then go ahead and apply it. But it's always best if you can get it on the fall before to give it some time to integrate in and be available to your, your crop. If there's nothing growing, if there's nothing growing, say if you have like a cover crop or something growing there, you could go ahead and put it on. But if you don't have a cover crop, you're not going to till out. If it's just, you know, fallow ground, nothing growing there, I would wait to fairly close a couple weeks or something before. Uh, why would seed crop double or triple the lifespan of lab animals? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it may, may have been made that confusing. It's not seed crop itself. It's some of the trace and rare earth elements that you get out of the ocean that they've used, they've tested in the lab and it's doubled and tripled lifespan. They don't know. Something, something in the, the metabolic processes of the, of the organism, have it, having it there, again, it's not used up. A lot of the, the minerals are not used up in these, these uh, um, when they catalyze reactions to build, construct stuff and everything. It's like a hammer. You might, it's not a nail, it's a hammer. And so you use the hammer over and over to put nails in. And so it's not used up in the process of building. You use the lumber up, you use the nails up, the screws, whatever. But the hammer and the saw and, and those tools, they don't get used up in the construction process. And so it, all, it doesn't take but a tiny bit of it to, to achieve whatever the um, reaction is that needs to, needs to get done. But they don't know. They don't know why. That's what I said is that a lot of this research is fun. They know this happens, but they don't know why it happens. And nobody's really pursuing that kind of research anymore. So when I say this is an ideal model, to the extent that we understand it, and, and the way I just deal with it, all of these traces and rare earth, uh, we'll talk about some of the ones that are not commonly, um, not commonly measured. One, nickel now is becoming more and more measured. Silicon, silicon is the most abundant element on the planet. And so people would say, why would we need to, why would we need to um, test for silicon? Why would we need to apply silicon? Well, we're, uh, through all the, the chemicals that are being used, the pesticides and the herbicides and, and all the other sides that are being applied, you're killing off the biology. And the biology was what was breaking out the, the silica out of the quartz, you know, the quartz grains that it was in, was releasing and made it into available form, and you wipe out a lot of that biology, you're going to have a bunch of it there in a coarse form, but it's not available to the plant. I mean, you could have 10,000 pounds of phosphate in a rock form, but it, it, the, the whole point is you're wanting it insoluble but available. You need to have a certain amount of material available. You might have thousands of pounds of it in the soil, but it's just not available. And so, in the biology, that slight acidity in the biology are what actually break that stuff down and release it, make it available. How many of you guys like watermelons? Um, Burrell Seed, they're, they're a breeder out in Colorado. I, I get their catalog. And in their catalog where they sell watermelon seed, they have, where they, you know, they, they give you instructions like, a, a, you know, growing instructions and stuff like that. And in their catalog, they say you should plant watermelons in a different area each year because there's something in the soil that's not readily replaced that, that um, gets used up, and then the, the next year you don't have as good a watermelons. Well, that's something that gets used up is silicon. All the cucurbits, if you, want, um, if you want healthy cucurbits, they're silicon accumulators. And if you use like a, you can use a potassium silicate or something like that, or you can spray it on the plant. If you actually look at it under a microscope, um, it actually looks like little glass shards all over the all over the plant, but you won't have the fungal diseases like powdery mildew and downy mildew if you have adequate silica available to the cucurbits, whether it's cucumbers or squash or watermelons. So foliar spray yeah. or you can foliar spray it. I actually apply potassium silicate to the soil and work it in too, as part of my potassium applications. Hmm. There, I don't. Think there's a certified source yet for potassium silicate? Somebody told me that they found one, but then they said no. I don't think it was. So it's it's a purified product. I mean, it's mined, and then it's a, but um, it's expensive. And again, it, it would be more more commonly used, but it's just expensive. So a 50-pound bag might cost you $140, $150. So 
If you're just doing it as a foliar, it doesn't take very much. I applied some to the soil. You can also use diatomaceous earth, which is amorphous silica. What's that? Not a lot. It'd be its primary. It's primary. I think it's 98% silica. Silica. It's not readily available. It's not. It, well, it's finely ground, so there's a, a, quite a bit of it that is available, but um, not all of it. It might be more of a long-term. Yeah, long-term source. Would you take diatomaceous earth internally? I don't think it would hurt you. If you got parasites, it might be a pretty good thing to do. Well, you have to be really careful because of it, you don't want to get it in your lungs. Because remember those little glass shards that you would see under the microscope? They can do a, a real number on your, your lungs. So best to have a mask on and uh, use a duster or something. Don't do it when on a highly, you know, a windy day or something like that. You don't want to go up. Yeah, you can make a slurry out of it too. If you had some way to spray it, it'll tear up sprayers though. That same, because of that sharpness. It'll, it'll wear a sprayer out in a hurry. Well, silicon will, will help on that. Potassium levels have to be, uh, all the cucurbits use a lot of calcium and they use a lot of potassium. And you better be sure you have all, you know, abundant amount of that there. What, what prevents a lot of this, your first level, we're gonna talk about this when we look at uh, uh, insect pests. Four minutes? Oh, okay, we need to stop here. But when we talk about insects, pests, and diseases, we're, we're going to look at the different levels of function you have to have before you will overcome those problems. But once you achieve those functions, you have, that problem will pretty much go away. And one of the things that happens when the cell wall, when you have adequate um, silicon, calcium, potassium, and adequate photosynthesis where you can build enough fat into the cell wall, lipids into the cell wall, insects will come along like that and they'll chew on it. They try to chew through it, and it'll wear their mandibles off. It'll literally wear, it's like, it's like you trying to chew on something that wears your teeth off. They've taken photographs of it where they show on grasshoppers and, and other creatures where their, their mandibles are just totally gone. They're just worn off from trying to. Would that be true of Japanese beetles? Yeah, there's a, there's a different level of function because beetles have a more sophisticated digestive system and so um, you, you have to achieve um, complexity First, the first level is photo, you know, full photosynthesis, and then the next level is getting conversion of, of nitrogen into proteins, you know, complete proteins, nitrogen and sulfur into complete proteins. Sulfur goes a long way to help with that problem, too. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.